Welcome to Security All In. This is Sam Curry, the Chief Security Officer at Cyber Reason. And as always on Security All In, we try to find out uh, what makes people tick uh, when they went all in on security or security went all in on them. And uh, we also try to tie it back to a little bit about risk motif. And we try to find people's passions and what makes them really security people or what they bring to the game that's a little bit different. And Today, I'm super happy to be joined by my longtime friend and colleague, Ed Amoroso. Ed, welcome to Security All In. Hey, Sam. So, Ed, I, I think you're known for many things, but I think your longest tenure where I think most people interacted with you as cybersecurity has grown over the last few decades was your role at AT&T. And, um, but you've done many things in your career, and I think probably to, to kick things off, I have just an open question. How did you find security or how did it find you? Well, that's a good question. You know, I had a very unfair advantage, Sam. My um, my dad, the son of an immigrant from Italy, came over and demanded that his three sons, they, he said they could do anything they wanted as long as it was engineering. So you just pick which engineering <laughs> you wanted. Sounds like my dad, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. So my dad got into electrical engineering and, and mathematics, and he was at the University of Pennsylvania in the early 60s. And they approached him while he was doing his PhD and said, you know, we'd like to call your PhD this new thing called computer science. And my dad went, huh? And I remember him famously saying, if you have to call yourself a science, then you probably are not one. And, you know, but he did it. I think he became like maybe the second or third PhD in computer science, like in the whole world. That's As a little kid growing up, I had an ARPANET connection in my dad's office that I would get on. And I remember Carnegie Mellon had these two servers, CMUA and CMUB. And in the early 70s, I was just a kid. I was writing Pascal programs and making them run on the I love Pascal. CMU computers. Yeah. Isn't that nice? I mean, it's not dramatically different from you know the kinds of things like when I'm, I taught my kids Python when they were younger, I'm not all that terribly different from the Algol you know based yeah. languages that we were learning in the seventies. I studied physics as an undergrad. So my dad took me aside when I started grad school, and he said, "Ed, you know what? You ought to get involved in computer security." I remember he mentioned Dorothy Denning. Yeah. And he said, why don't you go to work there? And um, we also knew Peter Neumann, who was at Bell Labs. Yep. And then that's where I ended up going. I ended up going to Bell Laboratories, which obviously ATC. And day one, got involved like in cybersecurity projects. Bob Morris Sr. was there, you know, in, our, in the work group that I joined, adding security to the Unix operating system. And I got involved in that project that was almost 40 years ago. So really unfair advantage, Sam. I had somebody who knew <laughs> to point me in a direction that was going to make sense. It was no accident. You know, my dad knew exactly what was going to happen. And he was right. And it's been a, a nice uh, career, albeit one that was initiated a little unfairly. I'm always surprised at how much we have in common. My, my dad did computer science in the 60s, practically. Mm. But uh, he was a physics major, as was I. I did my undergrad in physics. Yeah, me too. And he was the head of computer science, I think the first one at the University of Quebec in, in 1972. Isn't that funny? So I had all this access to stuff. And my dad, he worked on Logo, 
back in the days and, and actually the first Hindi cool. programming language. And he told me, Pascal, use Pascal. You will actually get good <laughs> habits in programming. I'm like, I don't want to. Basically, was brain damage. And apologies to people listening. We lived in Quebec, so we didn't have license plates on the front of the car. We had them only on the back. And I remember driving around with the Bell Labs Unix Live Free or Die license plate on the front of the car when I was a kid. Yeah, that's awesome, right? Those things now are so rare, so hard to find. So just like computer science emerged from mathematics and electrical engineering, in many ways, security also emerged from computer science. And so Mm. you've had a chance to see that. Was there a moment when you said, I'm a security guy? Or has that in fact happened? Is that a is that a thing for you? Well, there's a couple of things that happened with me, Sam. I mean, I always think of myself as a computer scientist. I've been an academic, like I taught at Stevens and now NYU. Been doing that for thirty thirty two years or so, taking thousands of graduate students studying computer science through cybersecurity or crypto or in the early days in software engineering. But I started up and it worked. What I noticed I know you've noticed this too, is that, you know, kind of around the time, the mid nineties, when businesses started to notice that, uh oh, maybe this is a real problem. People like me got drafted to go figure out how to build IT security departments. Yeah. So I, I met, no I met Steve Catton. Yeah. Right. It was like, they didn't exist. And I don't think people appreciate how bumpy that was in the beginning. Cause you take someone like me. I, you're, you're similar. We're kind of gearheads, programmers <laughs> working in the lab. And then all of a sudden you have somebody 18 levels up from you asking if you could put together this function for the corporation to protect its assets. And you go, yeah, yeah. So immediately you jump to the things that are comfortable. I remember in the 90s buying a bunch of net ranger IDSs and stringing them all together and putting people in a big room and building essentially what was one of the first security operations centers and thinking it was going to all work just great. And you know what? It was a colossal failure. You know what the heck we were doing. And one of my buddies, Michael Singer, and I worked on that and nothing worked. And that Bill O'Hearn, who's the CSO at AT&T right now, had, we were all together trying to figure out how do you do this? And we realized that business and operations were dramatically different than computer science and, and you know, quote unquote, even security. So AT&T, you know, packaged me up and sent me off to Columbia Business School to learn management, to learn business, to learn how to read a, an income statement. And for me, it wasn't sort of noticing that I was a quote unquote security person. It was my recognition that cybersecurity at the enterprise level have so many different dimensions that had nothing to do with what I was trained for in graduate school, mm-hmm. compliance, managing teams, interacting with business units. I've learned that the people who succeed the most in enterprise security are the ones who can communicate the best, the ones who, I don't want to say make friends, because we, we've always talked to describe cybersecurity like this tough manager is saying no and demanding that policy be followed and laying out these uh, directives to an organization. That's not been, been my experience. It's, it's more people can communicate and help business units understand why it's in their best interest to do things properly. These are not skills that you learn studying cryptography in no, a graduate class. I mean, they're totally different. So so that was kind of the moment for me when I started you know, designing and building 
IT security teams and interacting with others. There were handfuls of people who were starting to do that in the late 80s, early 90s. The NCSC conference in Baltimore was our meeting place. And once a year, we would all convene and connect with your peers and people in other businesses. Probably three or 400 people would go each year in the late 80s and early 90s. And we would compare notes. And we were all coming to the same conclusion that none of us were trained to do this. And that was sort of the journey for me that became the most interesting. I, I transformed from super gearhead in the lab to this guy trying to figure out what it means to be an executive. And I, I don't know that I ever cracked it. I got to the point where I was one of, you know, a small number of people running a very large company. You can see at the time I, I retired, I was the seventh or eighth largest company in the in the country. And I was an, an officer and I, I always felt like an imposter. Like, how did I get here? And I, I think a lot of cybersecurity people find themselves in that situation now because it's such a new discipline. So people listening, I hope they'll recognize a lot of different paths to cybersecurity, but they all sort of collapse in this combination of compliance and management, communication and technical, all these different skills that are required. Sam, you're one of the people I know that um, has all of those. You're a rare person that I do think is able to live in each of those areas. It's not easy to do them. No, and and it's tragic in many ways. And, And thank you for that. It's tragic because so many people, you move up the technical charts, if you will, and then you get to the business mm-hmm. position. And I think the biggest problem in security is this lack of understanding between the security department and the rest of the business. It's still, it's still very much seen as, as a hobbyist, maybe not a hobbyist, maybe in the weeds discipline and not really understanding the business. And that bridge is that whatever the title is for the chief security officer, they are fundamentally a business person has to make that bridge. And and the tragedy is that so many people cannot make it at that level or fail to be seen as business people first. We don't bring people up that way. And if you parachute somebody in from somewhere else, they're kind of a foreign body in the security department. And it's, it's funny, feeling an imposter, the, the literal imposter syndrome, actually, while it hits those who are imposters, of course, that's fine. But it also tends to hit those who are highly competent because mm-hmm. it's hard to remember just where your competence comes from. And, and you never get it perfect. So this is a big struggle. You know, it's funny you say there's lots of paths to get there, but I don't think we do enough as a community to say, here's what good looks like in this role. And it's not being the smartest person in the room technically, and it's not being the person who leaps all over the security subject. It's being that bizarre, you know, living in two worlds at the same time and being comfortable with it when it's fundamentally uncomfortable. Does that resonate with you? It does. You know, an example that I often give when I am um, teaching, like lately I've been teaching over at NYU Law School to people who are non-technical, a lot of business folks who, you know, want to learn policy and, and the more, more legal and compliance aspects of cyber, which is very different from what I grew up studying. It's a whole different uh, set of curriculum that um, I really enjoy teaching. But an example I often use is that if you were a chief financial officer, a CFO in an organization, and the finances of the organization go south, it just everything goes awry, and eventually the firm goes bankrupt, you can imagine the CFO you know, sitting, lamenting what happened and saying, gosh, I just couldn't get anyone to listen to me. 
You know, I tried to tell them stop spending and, you know, wasting our money, but they wouldn't listen. And we went bankrupt. No question. Do you have an ounce of sympathy for that CFO? Not at all, because that's the CFO's job yeah. to put the proper controls in place, to build the relationships, to communicate the objectives, and to inspire people to do what's right financially. Now, transpose the whole thing, Sam, to the world you and I live in. And now the firm has just gotten hacked. And there's a chaos and the smoke clears. And now the CSO or the CISO, the CISO, is lamenting what happened. And the CISO is saying, gosh, I just couldn't get anyone to listen to me. They just wouldn't listen. I couldn't convince them that security is a priority. I couldn't get them to give me budget. And the reality is, in that case, we do tend to provide a lot of sympathy. And oh my gosh, what a shame. They should have listened to you. But you know what? It's a lot of bull. That CISO is just as accountable as the CFO was to the financial problem. And that's a transition that has to occur. When you take a position in cybersecurity, in enterprise cybersecurity, you have responsibility. And if it doesn't get done, guess what? The buck stops where you are. And it's not just the CISO. It's whatever function you're working. It's not just your job to get the technology right. It's your job to align what you're doing with the objectives of the firm and to make it succeed, period. If it doesn't succeed, then you didn't do it right. And that's where these softer skills, communication, business, having judgment, the ability to convince people to your way of thinking, these are hard things to do. But you know, and I know, that that's what differentiates successful security teams and security executives from the ones who are there lamenting that, oh, you know, the CEO wouldn't listen to me and everybody's supposed to feel sorry for them. No, that's not the way it works. That's probably the most valuable nugget from all of the Security Online podcasts. And I'm certainly going to relay that because I think a lot of CISOs get to the position are used to being the child that doesn't get the resources and the, the sort of victim state. And to remember that, no, no, you're an officer and you're a shareholder, regardless of the social dynamics, fix it and get the result or it's a failure. Or move on. That's right. Yeah. That's the or do job. Something else. Go buy some, buy some golf clubs and, and go out there and, <laughs> and act like an executive. I mean, look, I, I'm not kidding. And probably, I mean, I grew up in New Jersey. I didn't have any money to play golf. Is golf your hobby? I don't know. I mean, I, I, golf, I have a, a baseball swing and it goes left and right. But the point is, you do some things that are a little outside your comfort zone and you do what you got to do to build relationships, whether it's golf or whether it's something else, whatever it takes you need to do. And these are rarely, rarely, rarely things that have anything to do with tech. I'll give you another funny anecdote. When I was at Columbia Business School, Mm -hmm. I I went to one of these executive programs that Columbia University offers, um, you know, for people learning business and post-grad kind of thing. And I would go there and we go to lectures. And a lot of times we would be physically there. Like it was one of these things where you went for a long period of time and lived in a dorm. And it was, it was quite an interesting experience. But I'd go, they'd ask us to read case studies. And there were hard, complicated case studies with 30 pages of financials. And afterwards, I'd, you know, get my dinner and I'd go up to my little dorm room and I'd be pouring through the numbers because that's what I do. 
And after a while, the professors would come up and almost grab me and pull me out. I remember one guy, he'd been the former CEO of Seagram's. He used to joke that he was in the booze business and <laughs> still is. He took me aside and he said, you know what, Ed? He goes, business is not in those numbers. He goes, you should come down. We're all down here in the bar. Why aren't you down here with us? And I said, because you have a case study. And I'm reading your numbers. He started laughing. He said, take that case study and throw the garbage and get down here in the bar. And I did. And I, I put the case study away. And if I was, again, I'm from Jersey. I can drink with the best of them. And I went down and I realized interacting with these people and spending time with people who are not in telecom, I was missing the whole point. I had my nose in these numbers and I wasn't down interacting with a group of really capable executives there at Columbia. I should have been collecting business cards, making friends. And yeah. and I did after a while, but the first half of it, Sam, I was doing what I always do, my nose in these numbers. And that was my comfort zone. And I learned that's not how you get it done. I was, that always stuck with me. You know, get your nose out of the numbers and get down into the bar and you're probably going to get more done. And, you know, it's, it's actually even more fun to do it that way. I think you and I have this in common that a combination of how we came up and our perhaps our fathers to some degree and the environments yeah. around us, we thought the value came Also from- drinking. I know I've, oh, well, sat, yeah. I've sat in bars with you with lines of bourbon <laughs> in front of us. Actually, yes. I got that from my mom, though. I got that from my mom. <laughs> you know, we come up through the ranks and deep down inside, I still have the engineer bias of like the value is in the thing I make and it, is it real or not? And am I staying current on that or not? And I think our whole industry produces really talented people like that who are going to the numbers and don't necessarily get energy at the bar, right? And, and it takes a lot to say, you know what, I'm not going to get that homework done. And instead, I'm going to interact on a human plane and build those social skills. And I got to think that, that maybe that's the big takeaway for those who were, how do I get to be CISO? So, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you is uh, advice that you might have for somebody who aspires to move ahead in their career, whatever they define that is. And that let's say at some point, closer to the business in some way, and you know that most of the people that we listen to who are coming up on the security track, they're going to say, what book do I read? What blog do I read? You know, what certificate do I get? So I don't want to bias you too much, but what would you say to that person who might be listening? What would your advice be? Well, I don't have to tell the people listening to your podcast to get interested in tech because they are. They're listening to you and they, they like the, the kinds of things you and I do. And that's my comfort zone, too. I mean, if given my choice of what to do, my favorite thing to do is to dig into something hard. Somebody just designed some new thing and I want to read about it or some AI paper in an IEEE journal. When we're out on the beach on the Jersey Shore, my girls, my wife, they're all you know, doing their thing and I'm, I've got my nose in some AI paper. I mean, that's what I love. But if you want to get ahead, then you better get social real fast. And I know that sounds funny, but I learn to communicate. And I don't mean communicating standing in front of PowerPoints. I mean communicating in an event or with people or at a function. Here's, I mean, look, if you ask my wife right now about me, and master to be honest, she'd say, there's no question that I have some social issues that probably have Asperger's, as do probably 90% of the people in our industry. So here's what my wife taught me, 
because as an executive, you go to a lot of functions where there's people in a cocktail party or a reception or a conference. And I would walk in terrified, looking at all these clumps of people standing in a room in twos or threes or fours. And I would think of them as molecules, you know, together in some bondage structure. And I would walk in and go, oh, my God, what do I do? My wife explained to me. She'd say, look, you see those two people standing over there talking? I go, yeah. She is, they are sick of each other. And if you walk up and say, hi, I'm Ed, they are so happy to see you because now you've improved the interaction. They don't want to just be a two. They'd rather be a three. They're not making a big business deal. You're not interrupting them. You're doing them a favor. And you watch. A lot of times one will peel away and then it'll be you. And watch how when you're talking to one other, you kind of wish somebody would come up and talk. And I went, wow. So, so I'd walk right up to the two people and say, hi, I'm Ed. How you doing? And they would smile and say, wow, nice to see you. And they did right. And we'd I've suddenly, and that. I'd go, oh my God, that. my yeah. wife was freaking right. And you walk up to three and now you're the, so little stupid things like that. No, look, she put it in terms that I could understand because I'm an engineer. You know, she's saying these two, you know, this clump of people bonded together. You're not interrupting something important. You're making it better. I can get that because I'm an engineer. That's the kind of thing for people listening. Those are the skills that we don't have growing up in engineering schools. We learn different things. And when you get into business, those are the situations you have to get comfortable with and not lampoon. There is another story. I remember, um, in the 90s, Ron Sharp and I wrote a book in 96 with um, Ziff Davis Press. Remember them? I do, yeah. ZDNet, ZDNet. Ziff Davis was the, it was the old name, yeah. Yeah, they were really popular, and I wanted to do something with them. So we wrote a book called Firewall Strategies. And here's what it was. Steve Bellavin and Bill Cheswick, who we worked with at Bell Labs, they wrote this amazing book called Firewalls and Internet Security that was just Tearing through I the industry, it. the I best book—it's it's like still the greatest book ever. But what was happening was it's actually kind of a hard book for people who didn't know TCP/IP or no networking. Mm-hmm. So Ron and I noticed because we were building one of the first commercial firewalls at the time on our Unix system that as we were out talking to customers, they didn't understand. So we said, "Let's write a book that kind of explains." how firewalls work and how you integrate it into um, a We had, uh, you know, technical book. If you look at it right now, it's all about protocols and showing the back and forth and the handshake and how you filter. Mm-hmm. But we also had in there a bunch of stuff on, you know, how you select the firewall and where you get them, where you download. And I remember we were all eating lunch once in the Bell Labs cafeteria. And somebody said to Ron and I, he said, yeah, I looked at your book. He goes, it's kind of interesting. is." Where do they they put that like in the management section of the bookstore? Because a lot of management stuff. They didn't know what to do. And I remember being furious, going, "Are you kidding me? Do you think we would write a management book?" Like I, I was about <laughs> as insulted. <laughs> and in retrospect, I think, gosh, you know, I was so of, the, of this mindset that anybody who does management is an idiot. And there's only technical people. And we had this, this belt curve shape that we would use to describe a career where you start on the low part of the bell curve when you just start work 
You work your way up as an individual contributor. You get to the peak where you are an individual contributor doing great work. And then, uh-oh, and then now you're promoted to supervisor. Yeah, then you're, you're supervisor now. Uh-oh, you're coming mm-hmm. down the other side of the bell curve. Now you're a VP. And then when you're the CEO, you're on the far side of the bell curve. You've lowered down. You're no more useful than the person who just walked in yesterday. And that's how I used to think of things. And I think that's all hogwash. That was me being just a total jerk. And I've learned that, you know, there's value to knowing how to deal with people, being friendly and and knowing how to listen and help someone. And that's not a technical skill. And like I said, it never came easy to me, but I learned how to do it and got to the point where I can sort of walk into a reception now and people would sort of think that I have this skill, which I totally don't, you know, I just learned how to do it. I love the bell curve analogy because I remember a point when I felt the same way and I remember developing almost a parallel perspective and I can still flip to it and say, yeah, I remember that. When I'm talking to my dad, you know, in the evenings now, I still feel it when I'm talking to him, but I completely agree. It is, it is hogwash. Value is not an absolute. Mm. If you build it, they will come. And you just drove me back to 1996, I was in a, a startup, which was a big one, but I had Tannenbaum's. Yeah, Bruce Yeah, his, his computer networks. And I remember, because we were doing mm-hmm. private key VPNs, and we as a, as a team, we, we invented the personal firewall. And I remember the debate if there was such a thing, could be such a thing as a personal firewall. But those books were so important to my startup before I sold to McAfee. Yeah. The second way for this is, so what, have you read anything recently that you think is particularly inspiring, whether it's domain-specific or not, whether it's business or tech, or just, I know sometimes you read biographies, for instance. Is there anything you've read that you find is particularly inspiring as a security person or as a technologist or a business person? Yeah. yeah. Well, I do read biographies. My two favorite books in the last month or two, I went through the um, Edmund Morris's biography on Thomas Edison. It's something that I really, really enjoyed. I'm still about three quarters of the way through that. And I read um, the uh, Einstein biography by Walter Isaacs, and I thought that was just really, really well done. I'd read his book on Steve Jobs. Wasn't a big fan of Steve Jobs. I mean, again, an amazing technologist on the personal level had some, some issues there. And, and Isaacson's biography of Jobs, I thought, was a little uneven. But I loved his biography of Einstein. I thought it was just really spectacular. So, yeah, I read biographies. The Robert Caro series on Lyndon Johnson is my favorite. I'm waiting for the next, last and final volume to come out. You know, read read all four of the big volumes. I I do enjoy uh, biographies of larger-than-life people because there's a lot of interesting messages in there. So that's what typically reads. Excellent. And I have an off-the-wall question for you. It's perhaps mm-hmm. our final question before we wrap, wrap up the, uh, the session. I know you've had dogs over the years. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's a dog that characterizes security, a breed? And, <laughs> and if so, why? Uh, and, I, and I know some of your past with dogs, as we've spoken about in the past, but is there one that you think says, hey, that, you know, if security had a mascot, it would be this one? Oh, well, you and I both know what that would be. And this I is think a, so. This I'm not trying to put it in your mouth. I don't want to hear what you say on this one. Well, we've both had Yorkies. You've got one now. I have a tough little Yorkshire Terrier that uh, I thought was cool because it was fearless. Mm-hmm. 
but it was also kind of cute and lovable. I think that, that's what I would hope you and I would want to be seen as security people that we're both cute and lovable, but also pretty fearsome. <laughs> don't don't get in our way. That would be a nice mascot. Yes, and you have to share the name of your your what was your, your oh we called him Scrappy. He passed away a few years ago. He's a tough little dude, man. I used to get mad because um, he was a male dog, and I'd roll around on the ground and like we'd fight and bite each other. <laughs> and then my wife, they would take this guy to like Scrappy, like the the place to get his haircut. He'd come back with one of these little stupid bows in his hair, and I'd rip the thing out and say, this is not a girl dog. Are you kidding me? And I think he appreciated it. He knew that bow didn't belong there. There we go. So Scrappy is our is our mascot as an industry. And Ed, thank you for coming on the show today. I really oh, my appreciate pleasure. it. My and, pleasure. Uh, look forward to talking again.